Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. We are in part 24, the final part of our series on the book of Revelation. And we've seen that this whole book is about God establishing the kingdom of God and directing human history through the person of Jesus. And that the message to the whole book is Jesus Christ as Lord. Before we look into Revelation 22, the whole idea of Eden being restored, I wanted to remind you that there is a really helpful chapter. Connie did some fresh copies that they're in the resource center right out here as you exit on the right. And this is a chapter on eschatology or the doctrine of the end times by Wayne Grudem, a systematic theologian. And it is one of the best and most helpful resources I can recommend. And it talks about the millennium, that thousand year period that we looked at a few weeks ago, but it talks about other things as well. And he does it in a very fair and thorough way, looks at the doctrine of last things. So as you open your Bible there, and we do have pew Bibles if you want to grab one, should be one under your seat or in front of you or somewhere near you. We'll have the slides up here as well. But we saw last time in chapter 21 that God is making all things new. And we saw that the whole theme of that chapter, chapter 21, was God's glorious presence coming finally to be among God's people forever. And that the chapter was given, like the rest of the book of Revelation, as comfort and courage to endure, to be faithful during difficult times. Today we're going to see that God chose to end the book of Scripture, to end the New Testament with these kinds of images that we're going to see in chapter 22. And we're going to see that God alone, through the person of Jesus, has set humanity, has set us and all of creation on a pathway toward healing and restoration that will be finally completed at the end of the age. What a journey it's been, huh? Can you believe we have worked through every chapter in the book of Revelation? And what we're seeing is through the book and in our own experience that that day will come when the Lord will fully consummate and wrap everything up and right all that's been wronged and heal all that's been broken. And we get foretastes of that. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God now. I wanted to read a little bit here from this gentleman named Hendrickson who invested many, many years, several decades of his life meditating on the book of Revelation. And he has a passage that I just, I tried to summarize it, but I couldn't. He just said it so beautifully. And I want us to just take a little bit of extra time to acknowledge we're at the end of the story. We're at the end of the New Testament. And we're going to see all kinds of things, especially today, that as the story started in the book of Genesis, it's going to pick up 
many of those key themes and bring them back together. So I wanted you to hear what he says. So if this is a little bit longer than normal, just do all that you can to listen to the words that Hendrickson says here. We have reached the final and most beautiful theme. There is a beautiful connection between the first book of the Bible and the last. Scripture resembles a flower. We find the seed of the flower in Genesis, the growing plant in the books which follow, the fully developed and beautiful flower in the Revelation. Observe the following comparison. Genesis tells us that God created heaven and earth. Revelation describes the new heaven and earth. In Genesis, the luminaries are called into being, the stars, the moon, and the sun. But in Revelation, we read, the city has no need of the sun, nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God lights it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Genesis describes a paradise that was lost. Revelation pictures a paradise restored. Genesis describes the cunning and power of the devil, the serpent. But the Revelation tells us that the devil was bound and hurled into the lake of fire. Genesis pictures that awful scene of man and woman fleeing away from God and hiding themselves from the presence of the Almighty. Revelation shows us the most wonderful and intimate communion between God and redeemed humans. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and women, and God will tabernacle with them. Isn't that beautiful? Finally, where Genesis shows us the tree of life with an angel to keep the way to the tree of life, lest man put forth his hand and take of its fruit, the book of Revelation restores to man and woman their right to have access to the tree, that they may have the right to come to the tree of life. Just thought that was beautiful wording here. We are at the end of the story, and we're going to see that the Garden of Eden is being restored and will one day finally be restored. So, Lord, we ask just for your special grace as we look at this final chapter we pray for you to show us the power of your word that's like fire to set our hearts ablaze as we read and look into it. We love you and we thank you for your word. Amen. So what we're going to do, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and make some comments and then we'll proceed here. So Revelation 22, I'm going to read 1 through 7 here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he, the angel, said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, for the Lord God The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So I want us to look here. You'll see several images. The first in this chapter about Eden being restored, about the full blossoming of the story in the New Testament, the biblical story, deals with the river of life. We'll also see the tree of life. But verses 1 through 2, look at it. The angel shows John, the apostle, the river of the water of life. And as we've seen time and time again, this is taken from Old Testament prophecy. Here it's Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14, where Ezekiel saw a vision about 700 years before Christ. And in this vision, there was a river that was flowing out of the temple, out of the presence of God, moving eastward down toward the Dead Sea in Israel. And Ezekiel saw in the vision that everywhere this river flowed, it healed or transformed the salty water of the Dead Sea into fresh, fish-friendly water. And so what John is seeing in this vision here is the ultimate fulfillment. There is a river that flows from the very presence of God. And it will bring healing and eternal, abundant life and fellowship with God. We know from Scripture, what does water represent? Jesus says in John 4 and other places, represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what John is seeing here is a universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit from the presence of God. It's described as bright as crystal, isn't it? If you look at it, and for us, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but in the ancient world where it was dry and arid, this was significant. Bright, clean, pure water, sparkling with the very life of God. Where's it flowing from? The text says, The river of God's Holy Spirit pouring comes from the throne, doesn't it? We've seen over and over again in the book of Revelation that good things flow from the very throne room of God. And that's what the text is saying here. It's interesting. We've seen this multiple places that it's the throne of God and who? And of the Lamb. So we've seen that the book of Revelation asserts the divinity of Jesus. Some people might say, you're a Christian. Why do you believe that Jesus isn't just a human? He's a prophet. It's texts like this that show us Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, is enthroned with God. It's language like this that leads to the doctrine of the Trinity that stems from Scripture. It's the throne of God and the throne of God of the Lamb. Friends, I want us to ponder for a moment here this image, the throne of God and of the Lamb, and a mighty river of the Holy Spirit pouring into human history. 
Do you need to get in the river today? I certainly do. Sam, you do? I do. I'm ready to jump in the river. That's going to be part of our invitation at ministry time. Are you broken? Are you in need of healing or breakthrough? There is an invitation through Revelation 22 to get into the river of God's presence that flows from his kingly throne. And you can do this anytime, anywhere. You simply have to wade into the water. You don't sit there and look at the water and think that the water is going to come to you. You actually have to enter into it. Friends, this is an invitation from the text. Get into the healing, life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. Another image is given here at verse 2. Look at it. It's the tree or the trees of life. There's so much. We've seen this, that these images are very fluid and flexible, aren't they? So if we try to picture exactly what it's like, we're not sure. It's both sides of the river. And this is combining, again, the imagery from the opening chapters of Genesis, where you had rivers flowing, the Tigris and the Euphrates. But this tree of life means many things. It's interesting, though. It's actually a symbol of Christ himself. It's not just an abstract tree. I read this from the Orthodox Study Bible. There's a beautiful quote here that says that the tree of life is a symbol of Christ who gives immortality, eternal life. He is a fulfillment of the tree of life promised in paradise. It is the cross of the Savior that's pictured here. The tree of obedience that he hung upon. The tree upon which Christ bore the curse of our sin. Beautiful image. Christ himself. The cross of Christ being pictured here. There's fruit. There's 12 types of fruit. One produced each month. 12 again. We've encountered that. This means that there's enough fruit for all of God's people. The 12 tribes. The 12 apostles. There's leaves. Healing for the nations. Look at verse 2. This is the therapeutic healing. Reversing of the effects of the fall. The healing power. And this is figurative of Christ and the efficacy of his redemptive death and resurrection. Friends, this is rich. This is worthy of much prayer and meditation, isn't it? The tree of life. Then there's life in this city. And we saw last week that we are the city that rather than God, as he did in the Old Testament, dwell in a particular localized place, what we're seeing here is that God inhabits his people from all nations, from all tribes, from all peoples. And we are the city of God in which he dwells. And if you look at verse 3, in this city, there is no curse. What it's signaling as you read the rest of the New Testament, we see that Christ absorbed the curse of sin and the wrath of God on his cross, turning actually the curse into blessing. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Friends, this is the gospel. 
preached in symbolism. The throne shows up again at verse 3 as if we haven't gotten it over and over again. The throne of God and the throne of Lamb declaring that He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is God. There's a new relationship if you're in this city as a believer and one day this will be fully realized. Look at verses 3 through 5. There's a new relationship with God and the Lamb. There are servants who worship. Look at verse 3. They're worshiping. And they're seeing God's face. This is the absolute greatest promise in all of Scripture. Think about that, friends. To see God. Don't we read in the Old Testament, people like Moses, who was the most preeminent Old Testament prophet, Do you remember back in Exodus 33 and other places? He was not allowed to see God's face. This is the one who met with the Lord on Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments and walked with God as a friend walks with another friend. Yet in Exodus 33, we see that Moses could only see God's back. He couldn't see his face. But friends, as new covenant people, we can. We can see his face. And that invitation is there for us. We talked about the Holy of Holies last week being accessible and open to us. If you're a believer, you put your faith in Jesus and you're in his church, you have access to the Holy of Holies. You can actually look upon contemplatively and prayerfully now in Scripture and in worship. You can gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Is there anything richer than that? No. And one day, friends, we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2 says that when Jesus returns, and he will return, that we will see him as he is. And it will transform us into his likeness at that moment. Friends, I just don't know of something more beautiful and promising than this in all of Scripture. Seeing the face, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And if you remember, these are the kinds of promises that were given to a church going through difficult times. If you're suffering, your family is being treated terribly, you're left out of all economic commerce, you may be in prison facing execution like the first century Christians were, these are the promises you go to. We can imagine that text like this, Lord, I will see your face. I will, this is all worth it. You are beautiful. You are glorious. You're full of mercy. I will be with you. I have no fear. It's text like this. Look at what it goes on to say there. His name at verse 4 will be on their foreheads. Do you remember earlier in chapter 13 what was on the foreheads of the followers of the beast? the mark of the beast. It was on their foreheads and their hands and it signaled the people who had given themselves to the satanic beastly system and they had said, we're yours. We're compliant. We submit to you and therefore the very name of the beast, the mark of the beast was written on their foreheads and on their hands. And so the text is telling us here that the true church, the followers of Jesus, will bear the name of God on their foreheads. 
And we saw in chapter 9 that Christians have nothing to fear, no matter how difficult things get. Chapter 9 says that Christians are sealed, they're marked with the Holy Spirit. So it's coming up over and over again that Christians are owned by the Lord, that they share his likeness, that they walk in fellowship with him. This might also signal something, and I think this is actually part of what the text is saying here. Again, remembering it's filled with Old Testament images, isn't it? And we think about the Old Testament priest, Aaron, for example, going into the presence of God, and he wore a turban on his head. We saw the breastplate last week, but he would wear a turban, and on the turban in Hebrew, it said, holiness unto the Lord. And so John is probably seeing in this vision something similar. The Lord is written on the name of all Christians. Holiness belonging to the Lord, bearing the very name of Yahweh, the holy God. Verse 5 says that God is their light. The fullness of God's glorious presence fills them and surrounds them. And they will reign forever and ever. Man, we could get lost in so many of these things, but this is Eden restored. If you remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord's intention was for man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to reign with God. But sin fractured that plan, and so this is being restored. The new Adam, Christ coming, will have a bride, an Eve and Eden will be restored, and man and woman will reign with God in Christ. Look at verse 6 here. I'm actually going to come back and read, and then we're going to look at what's called the epilogue. I use language like that at times because it's part of what you'd find in your study Bible. Basically means the concluding words. And so I want us to hear the concluding words and just make a a few comments. It's going to be Christ speaking and John and an angel and Christ speaking again. But friends, this is the way the good book ends. This is the way the story, God's redemptive narrative concludes. So I'm going to read at verse 6 again all the way to the end. And if you don't mind standing, let's do this. This is the way the New Testament ends. And if you're able to stand for these verses, let's do that. Then we'll make a few meditative comments. And if you're not able to stand, that's fine. But verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That's the whole theme of the book of Revelation right there in two words. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, 
For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. This is the word of God. Mm, You can be seated. That is how the story ends. The angel speaks at verse 6. says, the message that you've been hearing is true and it is imminent. It is close. And then at verse 7, Christ speaks. Christ's imminent return has been mentioned over and over again. We've heard about it in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 16, and now in chapter 22, again and again. Anyone else a little puzzled by this? It's a key New Testament theme. And I don't know about you, but reading texts like this can be challenging. Christ, you say you're coming soon. I read this comment this week, and it was actually helpful. Listen to this. Christ coming is a series of comings in blessing and judgment, and one day will be consummated by a final coming in blessing and judgment. So we pray as the church, Matthew 6, 9, your kingdom come, your will be done. And what we're saying embedded in that passage is, Father, send the king. Send the king. Jesus, you say you are coming, and you are coming soon, and you will come quickly. So when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying for heaven to open and for that rider on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth and eyes like a flame of fire to come and make things right and bring justice and bring healing. Christ will come. Verses 8 through 11, we've got this interaction yet again between John and an angel. And we're back at chapter 19 and we saw John falling down to worship an angel and 
We're not saying that he was a knucklehead or anything. This is the closest friend of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He's the one that reclined against the very breast of Christ at the Last Supper. But John is corrected again, and it may be that the text is letting us know these angels were so glorious and carried the majesty of God that John may have even thought it was Christ himself. How much more glorious the angel says, worship God, not me. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God only. Christ speaks at verses 12 through 16, and this is kind of interesting. As the whole story is wrapping up, you've got it's like a, a chorus of voices here. Who's talking? Who's speaking here? Well, Christ speaks again, verses 12 through 16. He says at verse 12, see, I am coming soon. And I'm returning with my reward, blessing for the righteous and judgment for those who reject God and Christ. And as we've said time and time again, Christ's coming will be great blessing and joy and relief for his people. And it will be absolutely dreadful for those who've resisted God. So friends, we want to prepare our hearts for his coming, whenever that might be. Look at verse 13 here, speaking about the identity of Jesus. Again, we're in some holy ground in this chapter, aren't we? We've seen that God and Christ share the throne, and now look at verse 13. Christ taking the very language of God from other places, including chapter 1. Jesus saying, I and the Alpha and the Omega. We saw in chapter 1 and chapter 21 that God was called these things, and now Christ is called the first and the last. These titles are applied to him, underscoring his sovereign lordship that he shares with the Father over all creation. Verses 14 through 15 talk about this blessing and warning the washing of robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. His identity at verse 16. Look down at that. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with his testimony for those seven churches. Let's look at what it says about him. This title here, these titles that are given, combine different Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messianic king's rule and reign over his enemies at the end of time. He is, as the text says, the son of David. He is the root and descendant of David. He is the bright morning star. In the ancient world, a morning star was the planet Venus appearing that signaled the dawn of a new day. And so this is a promise. Christ is that morning star that appeared in human history, letting us know that the long night of tribulation is almost over and he will return again. Look at this, friends, and we're almost done. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride are saying, come. I had always thought that this means that the spirit and the bride are saying, 
to Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. But actually, if you look at the context here, the spirit and the bride say come, and then look, let everyone who hears say come. It's the second use of that verb. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift. So there's four kind of invitations or invocations. And yes, I do think that it's the spirit and the bride together calling for Christ. But you know what else? I saw this this week for the first time. The spirit and the bride are inviting the thirsty to come as well. One person says this, echoing the gospel call of Isaiah 55.1, where this comes from, the spirit and the church bride combine their voices to invite the thirsty of the world to the water of life in Christ. Is that beautiful? So the spirit and the bride together calling, not only for Christ to come, but for the thirsty of the world The Spirit's mission is to transform the bride into faithful witnesses in a hostile world. And the bride's calling is to call out to the thirsty, come to my husband who gives the heart thirst-quenching waters. It's just absolutely beautiful. Friends, that's us, filled with the Spirit of God, yearning for Christ to come back, calling for him to come back, and in the meantime, calling the nations to come and drink of the water, to get out of the sewer where oftentimes the nations turn to drink. Why would you wallow around in the sewage water? Get out of the sewer and come into the river of the life of God in Christ Jesus. So verses 20 and following here, pretty straightforward, but I want to make one comment, and we'll move toward ending on this. Jesus says in verses 18 through 20, verse 20 says, I'm coming soon. I've already commented on this briefly, but the word actually means I'm coming at once. I'm coming in a short time. And so, The text is saying, once these various things that you've been reading about come together, Christ will come suddenly. We read in Matthew 24 that like the days of Noah, some will be completely unprepared, but others will see the signs and be prepared. This is a time that only the Father knows, Matthew 24, 36 says, And God's perception of time is very different than ours, isn't it? This is a great mystery in the Christian faith. But Psalm 90, verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8 says this. Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow. This is key. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. But the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So friends, he is coming. 
And maybe we don't talk about that enough, but it's a thread that runs through the entire New Testament. And here the story is ending with Christ saying, I am coming again. And when these things begin to come together, I will come quickly. And it is a part of being New Testament Christians that we remind ourselves, that we read these things, that we sing about it. I'm waiting for some fresh songs about the second coming of Jesus. Singing, let the spirit and the bride say, come, come, Lord Jesus. There's something in the heart of God about this. Look at how it ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. As we've walked through the chapters, it gets heavy at times, doesn't it? We've seen bowls and trumpets and seals and judgments, and we've seen the earth shaking with the presence of God and with judgments and deliverance, and it ends at verse 21. The grace, the unmerited favor, the love of God, the kindness of God towards sinners, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Friends, we've worked through Revelation. How do you feel? Feel all right? Next week, we're going to be looking at the ministry of Jesus and looking at some practical things about being a mobilized, prayerful, compassionate army of Jesus. But I just want to end with with this. This book is not just something that we study, that we learn, that we dissect. But I want to leave us with this question. What has the book of Revelation done to you? What's it done in you? What's it done in me? I'm going to be unpacking that for weeks and months, spending this amount of time most of the year into the fall in the book of Revelation. I want to just say three things. It gives us perspective on God. Friends, the Lord God, the Almighty, is sovereignly guiding human history to its goal through King Jesus. The kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Friends, this book should do something to our perspective on God. Trade in your teeny little image of God for the biblical size, the big size of God. God is king. Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. Gives a different perspective on ourselves as well, doesn't it? We've seen through the 22 chapters that we are the Father's beloved children. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're protected by the very power of God and empowered as Christ's witnesses to share the gospel of the kingdom to our nation and all the nations of the earth. As we saw today and last week, we're the beloved bride of Christ. This changes our perspective of who we are. We're clothed in the holiness and purity and righteousness of Jesus. And we're being prepared to meet him face to face. Finally, this changes our perspective on our spiritual enemy. We can't end Revelation without reminding ourselves of this. We are in a fierce battle. And the book has called us to wake up. We're in a battle with Satan, the red dragon, the unholy trinity, the beastly, satanic-inspired political empires, 
throughout history, and they want our compliance and submission, even now. We've seen that, haven't we? The false prophet systems want your compliance and your submission, but we are faithful to Jesus, aren't we? Hey, young people, are we faithful to Jesus? Older ones, are we faithful to Jesus no matter what, refusing any mark of the beast because we are marked with the Holy Trinity and we bear the name of God Almighty. So we end with this. Why don't we stand? Revelation 12, 11 summarizes all of this, this glorious book about the Lordship of Jesus, the coming King. And it says in Revelation 12, 11, but the Christians have conquered him Satan, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. So we ask Jesus, put that fire into us that we would be your unstoppable people in the coming days. We love you and again thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture, the gift of the book of Revelation. We love you. Amen.